most of the Sanskrit words that I chanted when I prayed was all about overcoming fears. Uh, and I believe the bridge you have to cross to convert your dreams to reality is fear. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Ravi Venkataraman. Ravi has held global leadership roles with banking and with shared services organizations for more than three decades. I have initially interacted with Ravi when he was the senior vice president and head of global business services at HP, leading a multifunction shared services organization of 18,000 employees located in 58 countries and responsible for the back office operation of the whole company, handling millions of transactions every day. After he retired from Hewlett-Packard, Ravi founded Alive Consulting to mentor and consult global companies on setting up their shared services operations and on developing design thinking in leadership. Ravi is the director and co-founder of Florets Academy, which manages two Montessori schools in Bangalore. He is an active trustee in a non-profit social enterprise with 100 schools promoting education for children in rural India. I've experienced Ravi to be a thoughtful and visionary leader. In this conversation, Ravi reflects on leadership lessons, on making tough decisions, on overcoming fear, and on the four spiritual principles that guide him in life and in business. Here then is my conversation with Ravi. Ravi, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thank you, Aviv. It's wonderful to be with you on this podcast. It's been a while since uh, you and I connected. Uh, so let me first ask you first thing, what are you working on at this time and what excites you and fills you with energy? Uh, Aviv, over the last few years, I've actually been working on uh, shaping the future. That's how I see it. Uh, earlier as a leader uh, in HP, uh, I was, it was all about enabling leaders across the organization and, and building a team and enabling them. Uh, now it is across different age groups. Uh, I'm in the, you know, in the Montessori school sector, which basically uh, handles uh, children from two years to uh, 14 years. And I'm also in the uh, corporate sector where I look at leadership and design thinking. So I believe that if you look at enabling the, of the leaders of the future, you're basically shaping the future. And, you know, what actually gets me going every day is that I slowly begin to understand that where there is curiosity, the adult in the child and the child in the adult actually comes out. And because of this curiosity, we start getting innovation and that's what keeps me going. And so you're suggesting that it's innovation and curiosity and triggering or, or unleashing curiosity in both uh, 
young children and adults is is a big part of the work you're doing i imagine yes absolutely correct so share some some learnings and and some insights about what uh, enables you to and how do you help people reconnect or or source their curiosity i'm talking about adults because i don't believe with children you need to do anything curiosity is right there uh, available and engaged you're absolutely correct uh, aviv uh, you know when i look at the kids i, I keep wondering where's all the curiosity that's disappeared in the uh, when we reach uh, uh, adulthood and somehow i think we've become uh, more and more uh, predictable but i've used a lot of uh, uh, design thinking uh, work uh, to ensure that i can get them to ask the right questions so primarily i work with adults on on how to ask the right questions and and that's been most of the work that i've been doing over the last uh, couple of years and and i put them in situations or give them you know work to do which has to do both uh with what they face in their uh business or in their lives uh so for example designing a better commute in bangalore for instance where it takes an hour or hour and a half to get everywhere uh, or for that matter anywhere and if you look at uh the back office sector and how do they handle for instance a situation where they haven't seen the customer but they are servicing the customer so how do you handle those kind of situations by asking the right questions and how do you build those relationships so that's that's most of the work that i'm doing that's exciting and as you know it's very much the approach that i have taken and am taking in in my work framing the conversations that help leaders create and shape the future because the questions we ask frame the conversations that we develop and the conversations that we develop mobilize the activities and the actions that that we take as a result of those conversations yes so i am very interested to explore what brought you to to where you are today and, and it's it's always good to trace back to the formative years because there is always tremendous insight that we can mine there so let me ask you what part of india did you grow up in and and what do you remember from your upbringing that left an important mark on you i can you know i grew up in bangalore uh, what we see as uh, today as one of the fastest growing cities but those days uh, it was more of a, a, a retirement uh, kind of town more than a city and then it, it it grew to become one of the biggest cities in the world uh, today uh, i can think of uh, you know three things that really shaped the uh, my view uh, over the years and and the first one was prayer uh, prayer not only helped me uh, become grateful for whatever i had uh, but also ensured that i had everyone in my prayer Uh, to me i see prayer as a communication with the deepest part of myself you know as most of the sanskrit words that i chanted when i prayed was all about overcoming fears uh, and i believe the bridge you have to cross to convert your dreams to reality is fear uh, and and these prayers helped me overcome that so that's that was the first uh, real thing that shaped me and 
Uh, and this was something that we had as part of our family uh, routine. It became a habit for me. The second uh, was uh, uh, an, an experience that I had in the chemistry lab uh, with, uh, with my chemistry professor. You know, I was doing an experiment and the uh, test tube uh, which I was working with broke. So I actually went with, uh, went with the broken test tube to get a new one. So I go to the chemistry professor and say, okay, uh, you know, the test tube broke. And he said, uh, can you put your hand out, Ravi? And I, and I did. And he took a stick and he whacked me, actually. And he said, please say, I broke the test tube. Uh, I, I didn't understand what he meant. And uh, actually, I just, uh, just to get another test tube, I said, yes, I broke the test tube. I went back home and I actually asked my dad, this is what the chemistry teacher did to me today. Uh, and he said, Ravi, he is trying to teach you accountability. You have to be accountable for your actions and you have to face and live with the consequences of your actions. So that incident actually is etched in me and, and it continued. What, uh, how, third, old were, yeah. how old were you uh, at the time of this incident? I was uh, 14. Right. What an age to be exposed to accountability and to taking responsibility. Yes, yes. absolutely. So, uh, and, the, and the third piece which really helped me uh, shape my uh, character were uh, football and music. Uh, primarily, you know, uh, football and music were all about uh, teamwork, uh, building the right relationships, and uh, connecting the dots in unusual ways. So, you know, I work with music in a way where if I see now and I look back how music has helped me, uh, say, in my job at uh, HP or in my job at uh, uh, NZ, uh, was the ability to connect dots in unusual ways. And I think these were the three things that really shaped me. Let me ask you about prayer. So... Prayer was something you were brought up with in, in your family and you took it almost as, as the way of living a life. Am I getting that picture correctly? You were introduced to it at a very early age, correct? Yes, from the age of uh, four. And so when you describe prayer and chanting, is this a practice where you follow a written, for, formulated prayer or is this a form of prayer that you self-create, self-tailor to, to your need based on what's arising in you? So what actually happened was, if you, look, if you looked at what I learned when I was four years old, was, was what was taught to me. It was just a chant. And these are pre-written prayers. And I prayed them and my dad would say, hey, now these are the seven prayers I want you to repeat every day. And you should you know, repeat them 12 times every day. And I became a, a ritual, uh, more of a ritual for me. And then slowly I started realizing that what I was chanting, the, the meaning of what I was chanting, in the first few years I didn't understand the meaning, neither did I even ask. Uh, but when I uh, went back to my dad sometime and asked him, hey, uh, and I don't remember when this was, hey, what am I chanting and what does this mean? He said two main things are what you're chanting. The first one is all about uh, fear and how you should overcome fear. And the second one is about surrendering uh, to God. 
whatever you want to call it. And he he uh, personally would say that you know each one has uh, a way to reach God, uh, which is why there are uh, you know thirty million or more uh, gods in uh, in India. Uh, for uh, it, it depends on how you are able to connect. If God is an energy form, you know whichever energy form you connect with becomes God for you. Uh, right. It could be a tree, it could be a snake, uh, it could be uh, a strong man, whatever it is. Whichever energy form you connect to becomes God for you. And and this was and is part of the the traditional Hindu practice. Uh, yes, it was uh, a part of the uh, of the practice. Uh, more importantly, what I want uh, you to understand was, you know, the Hindu scripture never talked about God or never talks about God. So if you look at it, it doesn't talk about God. It only looks at seeking. And when you say seeking, you become a seeker, and that seeker is truth. And that truth can take any form for you. So you are internalizing at a very early age, and later you seek the meaning of two overarching messages through the medium of prayer. The first is the journey to overcome fear, and the second is the journey to surrender yourself to some higher power or higher cause uh, or higher purpose in whatever shape or form you discover that, that connects you to that uh, higher or bigger or greater or more powerful being. These are the, the two engraving messages that you are internalizing in uh, your earlier life. And how do you then, how do these two messages then lead you into building a professional career? How are you beginning your professional career and how do these messages play out in your, is there a time where you back away from the, the prayer practice uh, and come back to it? Tell me about those early adult years when you are seeking to find your, your path in the world. So if you, if you look at it, I, I haven't moved out of the prayer practice. I continue it even today. It's a part of me. And I think it's a journey. Uh, for me, how I, uh, you know, I had initial setbacks uh, in, in parts of my uh, student uh, career. And I was able to handle those much better. Uh, in, in my opinion, I was able to handle those much better because of the, uh, the, the prayers that I had. And, and the concept of being, you know, grateful for whatever I, I have. And also, you know, ensuring that when I prayed, uh, I had everyone in this world in prayer. It was not a prayer for myself. It was about a prayer for everyone else in this world. So I was, I think I was able to handle uh, situations with uh, more equanimity than otherwise. Uh, if you look at it, you know, the uh, when I was uh, 21 and I had, uh, you know, gotten a, a degree in, in commerce, and I had uh, written the uh, entrance exams and got through a rigorous process to get into India's best management institute. Uh, those days, there was about uh, 150 to 200,000 uh, people writing those uh, exams and about 400 people making it to the institute. Uh, and I was one of them. And I lost the seat because, uh, uh, you know, my university didn't declare the result 
within the cutoff date that uh, the institute needed to, uh, the management institute wanted it. Uh, so I lost the seat for, uh, for for a reason which I just couldn't uh, imagine would ha- would happen, and I and I took it, and and I moved on. I went to UK uh, to do a chartered accounting program. Otherwise, I would have been uh, an MBA in uh, finance and marketing. Instead, I ended up doing a chartered accounting program in uh, in UK and worked with the KMG in uh, in Bahrain and then uh, in uh, in US. I'm sorry, in uh, in UK. So working with them in uh, Bahrain and UK actually expanded my my vision and it expanded my experience living in other countries, living away from family, taking a lot of decisions on my own. So on hindsight, uh, losing the a seat was an experience, but created a completely new future for me. It's it's often the the setbacks that open new doors for us into horizons that we wouldn't otherwise imagine. So what happens then after you, you graduate? What are the roles and, and how do you first find your first job and, and how do you lead yourself into uh, management uh, positions? Yeah, so uh, after I came out of uh, the uh, chartered accounting program and I moved back to uh, India and my first role uh, was that of uh, business finance. And the reason uh, I took the role was because I needed a job. Uh, I was actually, uh, I actually had to move back to India because personal reasons and therefore I, you know, I immediately wanted to settle into a job. I wanted to do something in sales because that's where I felt happy doing something. So even when I was in KPMG in London, I had done some sales uh, for them and it, it, I really liked it. So, so when I uh, came back uh, to India, nobody was willing to give me a sales role. Uh, so I took a job in business finance and actually started supporting the sales and marketing team of Digital Equipment Corporation, then the second largest uh, computer company in the world. Uh, I loved it because I was supporting sales and marketing. And in a way, I started learning the ropes, uh, but realized that you know, uh, I was missing the action of sales. So I quit that job and took up a job with ANZ, Australia New Zealand Bank, which had, uh, which was the largest foreign bank those days in India. And I took up a job selling financial services, basically merchant banking and investment banking services. Uh, and I think that brought me extremely close to the customer, uh, made me a little bit more customer-centric, Uh, made me start looking at things from a customer viewpoint, starting to empathize with customer situations. I think that grounding of almost 12 years in banking, uh, day in and day out with a customer, got me grounded from a customer perspective. Uh, It was then that I said, okay, I should move on now. And and the shared services, uh, if you looked at it as an industry, was really picking up in India. And I'd met a few friends uh, who were in that industry who actually talked about leadership concepts and how they were leading teams. uh, And those were new to me at that time. And I said, you know, I haven't been exposed to that side of it. But I found it difficult to imagine myself outside of a sales role. Uh, But I said that if I have to move out of the comfort zone, uh, that would be the point. And and, and I moved out and... uh, 
uh, I joined HP and started helping uh, HP setting up its uh, uh, its back office. But you wouldn't believe why I got recruited. Uh, I mean, in the interview, uh, I still uh, had uh, you know a discussion. I still remember the discussion I had with Jurgen Reiners. Uh, he said at the end of the day, after he you know went through with the interview, he he said, Ravi, I'd like to really offer you this job, and I'm doing this for two reasons. And he said one was was because of your customer-facing skills and the sales skills that you have. And my center here in uh, in Bangalore is uh, is not customer-centric, and I want you to turn that around. So that's one reason I'm hiring you. And the second one is because you play the guitar, which means <laughs> which means you'll be able to connect the dots. Actually, he had hit the nail on its head. That's beautiful. Uh, he's and and he played the guitar as well, correct? Yes. So he had the insight that when you play the guitar, you you connect uh, the dots. You you need to form the the chords that can produce harmony. Let, let me trace a couple of things in, in your story there, because what f- is fascinating about always the early stages of a person's career, th- there are two processes that go on concurrently. You are proceeding from one role to the next, and you are seeking to, to succeed. And at the same time, there is an introspective with some more, with some less, but a search to discover your talent and your strength, and what are the opportunities and the modes of operation that enable you to bring the, the strength and the differentiation that you can bring to the table. So two questions for you there. What was it about sales that you enjoyed and needed to then bring to new roles as you moved into shared services? Question one, and and what else were you discovering at that time about your strength and about your talent? Fantastic questions, Avi. So, you know, when I what, what I liked about sales was 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 when I was uh, selling, uh, I was talking to customers at the same time, getting that feedback. And when I had a win, every time I had a win, uh, it was a real high. Uh, every time I had a, a loss, it wasn't as bad uh, a low. Uh, as the high was whenever I won. So, and I, and I really felt good when I was in the market conversing with customers. But what it also did, uh, I mean, in those 12 years that I can remember where I was hardcore in the market selling day in and day out, I can remember that every year I came up with one or two product ideas that were implemented by the bank. So, I was in the market. I was able to look at what the customer wanted. I was able to anticipate what customer needs were or user experiences were and actually shift the product offerings of the bank to meet those needs. And the bank felt that they were good enough to be uh, introduced as so products. You, so you were able to, through your experience, bring innovation and, and shape go-to-market strategy and shape the offerings of the bank. Correct. Why is it that you were able to experience the high point of success as bigger highs 
than the low points as, as lows. Because for many people, it's the other way around. They experience the low points as more consequential and more impressionable experiences than, than the high points. Why is it that you were able to see the high points as more meaningful? Uh, so I go back again to uh, spirituality in this. Uh, there are four principles which I believe are uh, truths. And the first one is, whomsoever you encounter is the right one, which means they are there to help you in your journey in life. The second one is, whatever happened is the only thing that could have happened. So again, something happened so that you could learn from experience. So when you talk about the low, because I lost something, life was teaching me a lesson and that's how I took it. The third one is each moment in which something begins is the right moment. So for me, every moment is the beginning of a new life. Literally, that's what it is. And the fourth one, really critical um, Aviv is what is over is over. In Sanskrit, it is called gatham gatham, which means here, once you the experience ends, you're supposed to have learned from it, moved on, and evolved. Does this piece resonate with your seven-rung ladder in your book? That's the piece, uh, Aviv, and that's that's actually the uh, your uh, you know the model that you have the seven run ladder is something that I am using. I, I read the book and I was so thrilled when I when I saw that piece, and I said this is one thing that I really need to use, and I'm using that. I still remember the two examples you had given in 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 the book. One was about how to use it while mentoring and uh, how to use it in innovation, and actually I'm using it in my design thinking workshop. And in, in mentoring two of my uh, two leaders. I love it. It's the first time I'm hearing that somebody has actually taken this uh, framework and applied it uh, in, in the way I propose uh, in, in the book. Uh, uh, in a minute, I want to ask you about uh, an example you can perhaps share of, of how uh, it helped you and what are some of the results. But uh, let me just... Uh, address again those four principles, four spiritual principles. What's so powerful about those is the idea that you bring it to life in the, the moment-by-moment experience of in, in every situation. And I know that to be true of you because our earliest interaction had very much that nature. We had a, a one phone call when you took the role at HP, I think, and, and then you followed up and, and it had a, a very um, emergent and serendipitous nature, the whole way of, of how our dialogue uh, developed and evolved to the kind of collaboration that uh, we developed through the years. So, uh, But you've never shared with me these four principles before, so I am more appreciative now in understanding how you are propelled and and the kind of operating system that guides you and it confirms so much of how I have experienced you uh, in our collaboration. Thank you, Aviv. So, uh, but since you you mentioned uh, that you're using the seven uh, rank ladder, uh, 
Can you, is there an example uh, without breaking any confidentiality of any of your clients, a story you, you can share of how you have used that? Yeah, actually three stories, uh, Aviv. The, the, the first one, and I'll share the first uh, two ones of, of uh, two leaders that I coach. Uh, one uh, being actually at the, as it's a funny thing because I realized there was, a, she, uh, this, this uh, leader was struggling because she was at a level, which was your uh, level, uh, I think it's called serve, correct? And the organization was at a level called, uh, which you called play. Right. And she was struggling because she was one level ahead of the organization and she hadn't recognized it. And when we had a chat, actually, I realized that that was what was happening. And I suggested that she actually goes down to the play level and then take the organization with her to the serve level. Uh, she hasn't yet reached that, that point of reaching the serve level, but I saw her, she went down to the play level. What I realized, what I got out of this uh, uh, over the last uh, two months, Aveen, is that she is more at peace with herself because of this. That's a beautiful story. Yes, and, and a similar example, the other way around, uh, with another leader who is at the learn level, but the organization is at the play level. And right. he's at the learn level because he moved up a bit faster uh, than anticipated. So, and he's now started realizing he's failing. So he called me and said, hey, how do I handle this? And uh, I quickly used the surrender ladder uh, on him. And I quickly started to realize that, you know, the, the, the levels with, at which they were playing. And I've asked him to step up. I still don't have the results on this, but I've asked him to step up. But, you know, when I look back, uh, Avi, uh, the, the model has been so beautifully thought out by you. That's what I can uh, say, because it's working so well. Well, what's beautiful, uh, what's beautiful about the examples that you are providing is that you are using a framework as a diagnostic tool and you, what you're doing is you're doing the diagnostic of the leader and the diagnostic of the ecosystem, the organization. And in both those examples, the leader may be a step or two or three ahead of the rest of the organization. And actually your prescriptive coaching and guidance is you have to go a step or two down to engage people where they are, because only then will you be able to lead them to the next step that you want to lead them to? Correct. Absolutely correct. Wow. And the third example I want to give you where I used this was uh, in, a, in one of the design thinking workshops uh, where we looked at a product company, which is uh, into uh, batteries, and uh, they, they were left out in the market uh, in India in one of the market segments. And uh, they were looking to see, okay, how do we get a product out for that specific market? And by the time I finished the uh, three-day program with them, we actually had a product prototype going. And within a month after that, they actually introduced the product which today is one of the uh, largest selling products for them in uh, uh, in India. This happened uh, this happened around six eight months uh, ago, and uh, again use the 
use the ladder to ask the right questions. So, you, uh, and when I read through some of the other uh, aspects as well, uh, uh, Aviv, you know, I still go back to some of our conversations. I, I, I don't know whether you remember, you had used the three-legged stool for one of my workshops, actually, uh, to help us get closer uh, and collaborate more at uh, HP with our uh, uh, business teams. Just so, before you, just before you develop that, uh, for the sake of people listening who have not had a chance yet to uh, perhaps uh, pick up, create new futures, let me run by the seven uh, rung ladder and such that they can at least visualize what we're describing. And we will put in the show notes a PDF uh, with that part of the book so people can download it and, and take a look. But what we described there is that the first rung is where people are propelled to survive. That's essentially what they're working on. Once that need is fulfilled, people look to improve the condition. And once they have improved their conditions a little bit, they're seeking to learn. And that's the third rung. And we're saying that there is a distinct transition above that third rung because when those first three needs are fulfilled, then people can begin to enjoy and, and seek entertainment and play. But there are those then that proceed to the next rung above that, which is uh, I am enjoying, I'm playing, there is a lot of fun in this space. I now want to seek another opportunity. I need to serve something other than myself. And that once a person move into that fifth rung, the, the need to serve, it naturally will also lead them to the two, the six and the seven rungs on, on the, uh, the letters or the upper ones, which is to master your craft and to evolve as a professional and as a human being. And what you were describing was that you can use this as a diagnostic tool to discover what propels you at any given point in time. And also you can use that as a framework in innovation and ideation. So I'm, I'm uh, you've already made my date, uh, Ravi, by sharing these, <clears throat> these stories because it validates that somebody can read these off the page of the book and actually can put it to practice, which was my aspiration in uh, putting this together. Thank you, Avi. But um, honestly, Avi, uh, excellently written. <laughs> and so you were just referring to the three-legged stool. Uh, which three-legged stool? Because we have a number of them. Yeah, the one on trust. You actually did uh, something with me on... Uh, you know, collaboration and trust building. Yes. And I think that, that uh, I, I still remember that uh, and how Bob and I actually used that effectively. So, so let's use that to, to retrace just a little bit to your career because you, you said you came to HP and, and Jorgen Reiner uh, hired you. And for how long did you at that time stay with HP? So at that time, I stayed with HP for five years. Okay. Uh, we had just gone through, we were just uh, about to go through the uh, merger with Compaq. So there was a lot of, uh, lot of work, a lot of pressure, a lot of I told you so, I told you not to do this, na 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 kind of stuff. So that, that was one thing that was happening. At the same time, we were also moving uh, 
uh, away from our comfort zone, which was just about uh, FNA back office to other kind of back office work. And we had gotten uh, sales operations at that time. And I was handling uh, sales operations as well. And I still remember the first conversation I had with the customer. He, you know, he said, oh, you're the new guy who's, uh, who's, who's joined two weeks ago. And I said, uh, yes, Axel. And he turns around and he tells me, okay, I want to take the work back. Hmm. And that's how the conversation started. And you won't believe it. By the time we had closed a year from then, uh, we had moved from uh, 67 headcount that I had at that point in time to 400 headcount. So it uh, was, an, uh, again, um, a huge learning for me in terms of trying to find out where uh, we are going wrong, uh, working with the customer and, and finding solutions for the customer. At the end of the day, uh, uh, Avi, what I've uh, realized is if you shift the organization from an output-driven organization to an outcome-driven organization, you will see significant uh, value being added. Did you, Not only to this did you, organization, but to its customers. And that's did, what we did in uh, GBS. Did you mean from, from output to outcome or from input to outcome? No, output to outcome. Okay, say more what you mean by that. So, so, so let me give you, uh, uh, you know, an experience that, 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 I, that I faced. In, in 2011, that was the time I took over uh, GBS. And at that time, if you looked at uh, the vision of GBS, nothing wrong in it, but that was how it was shaped at that time. Uh, the vision was we manage the information and financial flows in the connected enterprise. Uh, somehow I looked at it and I said, hey, this uh, needs to change. Uh, we need to bring in the customer and we should look at more at customers from a HP perspective. So by you know, we went through a two-day workshop, a lot of brainstorming, and finally we ended up with interacting with HP is the most convenient and delightful experience in the world. And our tagline was delivering what matters. So we had moved from, you know, ma managing the information and financial flows of a connected enterprise to interacting with an enterprise is the most convenient and delightful experience in the world. So two things happened. One is I was shifting the organization to think of how, uh, you know, we as GBS are actually there to ensure that HP's customer has a delightful experience dealing with HP. Right. And I said, we may not control every aspect of that process, but we have to work towards that outcome. And we were not therefore all our service levels, which were about, did you process this widget uh, accurately? And did you process it on time? It shifted out and we started looking at outcomes. So let me give you an example uh, in this, Aviv. So if you take sales order processing, typically what happens is uh, you get orders and, and, and then during the month end and the quarter end, actually the orders, the last two days, the orders were just just come in at, you know, uh, in, a, in a huge bunch of orders will, will come in. And it's very, very difficult to get through the processing of all the orders on time because the skew is very high. And you'll have millions of dollars of orders coming in during the last day or two. So our uh, teams used to work with, hey, if I get 
10 orders by this cutoff time, I would have processed all those 10 orders. Uh, so when I looked at this and I, I, I turned around and said, hey, can you go back and see how many orders we are leaving on the table unprocessed as at that quarter end or as at that month end? And these guys asked me why I said, hey, you know, the sales guy needs to put food on his table. And if you process the order and it gets shipped out, he's going to get his incentive. So can we move towards measuring ourselves on how many orders we leave on the table unprocessed as at that month end? The, the organization shifted, I believe. Right. At that point in time, at any point in just for the EMEA market, we had around $40 million of unprocessed orders uh, at the month end. And this came down to less than, I think, one or two million in a span of three months. So the reorientation that you introduced was asking people, instead of being focused on the activities and counting their activities, to focus on the outcomes you provide for your customers and the gap that your customer experienced and through that to also focus on the outcomes of your customer customers. Correct. Absolutely correct. And, and the, the reorientation of people waking up and showing up to work, thinking and focusing not on their activities, but rather on the outcomes and the needs of the customer, that reorientation by itself uh, became transformative to the organization as a whole and the results that you were able to produce. Correct, Aviv. The, the ability for the processor sitting in, say, in Bangalore, not even knowing for whom he was processing these, uh, these invoices, for him to relate to the fact that what he's doing is actually resulting in higher sales for the company and therefore better profitability, one. And the fact that because he did this, some salesman sitting somewhere in, uh, in Europe was also getting his uh, incentives on time. He could see the impact. So and at that time, when you took uh, the leadership of, of GBS, that's 2011, you said, and you are leading at the time a very large organization. You are seeking to reorient significant uh, groups of people and, and teams. What, what are some of the key ideas and philosophies that you again bring to your leadership to be able to achieve these transformative results? So a few uh, things that uh, uh, worked for me at that time um, was trying to get uh, a, a large part of my team uh, to work with me on, on, on various aspects of change that we thought we should bring into the organization. One was the customer focus itself and therefore the shift in the vision, which, uh, which we did. The second was uh, primarily sitting with the leadership team and uh, figuring out who was willing to go on the journey with this new HPN and the new 
a paradigm that uh, uh, HP was faced with at that time. You you know that you know HP had taken over autonomy was from a cash surplus company had become a company which was down uh, 11 billion dollar in debt. Uh, so there was a new paradigm and GBS had to work in a different way. Uh, so we had to sit down with leaders and say, okay, who's going to come on board and uh, have all hands on deck and, and work, uh, work with this team to ensure that we move HP along in a different uh, trajectory. So that, that was something that we did. The third uh, piece, we put a lot of focus on building capabilities, different kinds of capabilities, whether that was capability at the functional level, whether it was FNA or HR or supply chain, as one part, uh, capability at the at the technology level, uh, you know, robotics and other things, which we did even uh, back then in, in 2011, forging uh, new alliances with customers. And this was the biggest aspect for us. Uh, how do we forge new alliances with our internal customers and working on their projects? So deploying our uh, skilled people like our black belts that we had and our you know, program managers uh, that we had, deploying them into customer projects so that we could help customers win in the marketplace. This was the critical workshop which you did for us. I'm sure you remember it. That was the workshop that you uh, did for us where we uh, you know, wanted to shift that whole leadership team to start thinking more and more of customers. So these were, there was a whole load of uh, things that we did at that point in time, we at least, I would say a set of around uh, 11 to 12 different aspects which covered people, technology, a customer, and, uh, and processes. And, and it made a huge difference you, because we talking. started working more on projects. I got the organization actually turned around and I ensured that, for example, uh, below a certain level in the organization, we worked on the outputs ensuring that we process those transactions, whatever it was. So we ensured that that piece happened. So uh, the business as usual was, you know, we didn't drop the ball on the business as usual. At the same time, I had some of the senior folks and others actually working on projects that mattered to the customer. We worked right. on about 200 projects in those two and a half years. What, what are some of the the one or two most essential learnings for you from this time of, of massive change, uh, leading such a large organization? What, what, what are the big lessons that you have internalized at that time? That's a huge uh, question because there were so many things that, uh, that you pick up along the way and then uh, you, know, you, you learn. But uh, here, I, you know, when, when we look at change and uh, when I looked at this, uh, I realized uh, two things. One is at the really le top leadership level, you need not agree on everything, but can you get aligned mm. so that the organization doesn't suffer? Uh, make uh, that distinction uh, for me, please. The, the, the way you differentiate agreement to, to alignment, how do you process these two okay. ideas? Okay, so, so, so let's say that... Um, at one point in time, HP had to get $11 billion of cash flow to ensure that it wipes out its debt. Uh, and this was something that we discussed at the real, you know, at the, at, at the leadership level of uh, the executive committee. And a team was formed uh, of which I was part. 
and uh, to see how do we how do we handle this the approach taken at times i i didn't agree with the approach taken by uh, by the team at some point in at, at at some of those meetings but i aligned with them because i knew that the purpose and the reason why we were doing this was for a bigger cause for hp so many a time you do not agree with certain things but you end up having to align and that alignment is absolutely critical in in difficult times that is one right, uh, right. second let, let, let me capture this is a very important dis- distinction you don't have to agree with everything to achieve alignment you can believe that there could have been a different way but if there is a decision you nevertheless choose to align your efforts and, and your work in, in support and alignment in that is something different to compliance. Correct. Compliance will often produce resentment. But alignment exactly. essentially is you saying, I understand this, was the, this is the decision, I understand these are the priorities, and I'm prepared to, to pull my full weight and, and effort and skills and capabilities to help achieve the results we are working to achieve in this way and to mobilize my organization accordingly, that's alignment. So very important distinction because often in business we don't have 100% agreement, but alignment is indeed critical. Absolutely correct, uh, Avi. Absolutely correct. Uh, I would also say that, uh, you know, uh, I had a few other learnings uh, along those uh, those days in, in the in the difficult times uh, times that uh, that we had and that was that you had at times to uh, stick your uh, neck out and be ready to be counted you know many a times we turn on and say something didn't happen in the organization and then you point upwards in 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 the organization structure oh he did that right or he did that wrong or hey you know i'm not empowered to take a decision most of the times we are empowered we are only risk averse and therefore don't take those decisions right uh, and for uh, and for me i think those difficult times called for tough decisions to be taken and we did we did take some really tough decisions uh, uh, in those and therefore the ability to take those decisions the ability to take risks and calculate is a, is a must in uh, in those situations and i think These were my uh, key learning uh, points. One of the challenges in times of high velocity and massive change is that you, you need to internalize a lot of not just new information, also new ways of doing things. And, and the, the question is always how do you learn best and how do the people around you learn best such that you can help facilitate things the acceleration of the transformation because learning is the the inner mechanism of that process so first question about this is how do you learn best what have you learned about your learning style and how do you help yourself when you need to internalize tremendous amount of new learning oh, great question I mean My learning uh, has primarily been uh, by listening and by asking questions and and I actually had a team uh, if you if you looked at even within uh, 
the GBS, we had a team of, uh, we had a think tank, which was not necessarily from people who reported to me and neither was I in that think, think tank. We had a think tank of uh, some of the best brains in that market or in that vertical, whatever we were servicing, and we brought them together. And my job was to get them on to doing things, uh, really looking at ways we are doing it, and then come back and talk to us as the leadership team to do that. And my job was to listen to that and facilitate that uh, piece. And, and that's how I uh, uh, typically learned. The other thing that, we, that I uh, uh, liked doing was, and I found my learning was very high during those periods, was that if I wanted to do something, typically most uh, leaders are a little bit risk averse. They would say, let's get the things done and then announce that we did it. I would actually announce that I'm going to do it, put a time frame, and then work towards it. Right. So it put me under pressure. And if I was failing, it got the best out of me so that I could learn faster and get things going. Right, which is a, a, an approach to increase velocity Correct. and help people discover that they can be more adaptive and more agile than they even believe themselves. Absolutely. And, and inside it, you have also then, uh, you have opportunities to engage in fast prototyping, which is, which is part of how you accelerate that process. There is a date and you work backwards and you introduce some um, dates with destiny that leads to, to the, that date and people are able to all of a sudden produce results much faster than they imagined was possible. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, just imagine even in, that, in, the, the, in the project, which I can not able to give you all the details of that project as they were confidential, but you know, one of the projects that we did, which was uh, for the CEO of, uh, for of HP actually, uh, this was about uh, competing in, a, in one segment of the server market. And we had lost some significantly large deals uh, to our competitor. So actually uh, my team sat there with sales and supply chain people and a few others. We led this project. And in nine weeks, we had redesigned a server which cost more than you know, 25% lower than what we had earlier. And in those nine weeks, not only had we redesigned the server, but we had actually tested it and it was ready for shipment in, in large quantities, not small quantities. And which, if you look at a product design and a life cycle of uh, HP, at, before it was launched, it takes 12 to 14 months. And we had made that nine weeks. And your leadership philosophy, in the way you're describing it, Ravi, was to create the opportunity for the smartest people in your organization to come forward and offer the, the best ideas, and for you to, to create the space and the scenario where they can exercise these, and, and for you to make sure that your leadership team is attentive and listening such that you can recognize the best ideas and support them to actualization and execution. Yes, I will. You, you always articulate things uh, so gracefully. <laughs> <laughs> Don't reveal the secret because if the secret is out, 
people will know that they pay me for my ability to say back to them what they already said to me just with nicer words <laughs> which is a skill too <laughs> absolutely you wrote in your blog that the world lacks genuine leaders people who can speak the truth and demonstrate genuine concern so can you say more about that observation and, and also do you have a a role model in mind somebody that represents the idea of genuine leadership and i mean in in business but also on the world stage in geopolitics or anywhere yes uh uh aviv actually what what's happening is i think the pressure the pressure of what we have defined as success which goes back to equating everything into a dollar uh, or a rupee as i would call it here in india uh, and defining success in a narrow uh, framework has resulted in us uh, taking decisions where we uh, we basically uh, you know as dalai lama said we we are um, we prefer to be right than be kind we and prefer we prefer has, you're quoting the Dalai Lama, I think, saying we prefer to be right than to be kind. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. Yes. He actually said it differently. He said, it is better to be kind than be right. Mm. So, uh, because of the narrow ways in which we uh, define success, what really happens is we end up trying to be right for the, from an organization perspective and forget the human who's sitting in front of you on whom that decision is being taken so i would and i've run by the philosophy that i would rather be kind than right and many a times i've uh, been seen as a failure in some organizations some organizations saw me as someone uh, who was soft uh, didn't want to take uh, tough decisions and uh, if i look back I, i still think i took those tough decisions and those tough decisions that i took uh, were that i disagreed with the success construct of the organization let me uh, let me I put yeah. let me put a magnifying glass on on this for a minute because you're saying that it is possible to be kind and make the tough decisions in business yes can can you can you say more about that and and give perhaps an example of of how you have experienced it yes so uh, so so let me uh, let me look at it uh, in in one of the organizations which uh, which i led i uh, had to take a decision where uh, we had to let go of around 600 people in australia and i ended up uh, having that conversation I, i said i want to be in australia i want to go and address all those teams one by one a year in advance which i did a year in advance so i could get them prepared i also worked with uh, hr to change the policies to ensure you could give them alternate you know skill sets over the next one year and help them you know move out of this current job and move into some other job and you know uh, i was faced with some difficult difficult very difficult conversations uh, there was a lady in uh, sydney who asked me hey ravi you come all the way here so that you could 
wash your sins off, uh, that now that you've decided to throw me out uh, in a year's time. But there was another person who, uh, who came back to me after a year and said, Ravi, I'm so happy. You know, I wanted to be a hairstylist all my life. Here you gave me some money to train myself and I'm actually on and I've, I've started my own hairstyling business. I moved out of banking. So, you know, you can, you can be kind. Uh, you can uh, keep the person in front of you who's sitting in front of you in mind while taking a tough decision and, and, and being right by the organization as well. You were saying that it is possible to do what's right for the business and what's right for the organization and at the same time refuse to give in and surrender to the deficit in humanity and in, in values and in ethics that is, is so uh, prevalent in, in business today. Yes, absolutely. The, the only way to do that, I believe, Ravi, which is probably where you started with your anchoring practice in, in prayer, is the, the person on point, the leader on point, must be grounded in some core beliefs and values such that they have a center of gravity that can withstand the transactional and volatile pressures of the moment. Because unless there is that center of gravity, it's very easy to lose that sense of clarity and the, the recognition that you're dealing with people's lives and get completely separated from that reality at, at the high places of leadership, forgetting to remember that you're impacting hundreds and thousands of people. Correct. Absolutely correct. You, so you also write in, on your blog that, very much in line with what you're saying, that there is a huge need for love, healing, tolerance, and that the, these are the, the remedy, perhaps, that can redeem that sense of uncontrolled greed and unbridled ambition. And that unless, unless we cultivate and, and encourage and bring up leaders that are kind and compassionate, it's going to be very difficult to see this shift. Uh, so how are you, I imagine in part that's why you're driven into education, but connect the dots for me here again of how with your experience in business, you found yourself active in the Montessori education space. And how do you bring that uh, vision of different kind of leadership that you want to see in the world, how that influenced the, the work you do with, with children and with students? Uh, Abhi, it goes back to... Go ahead, Abhi. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. How, do, how does that impact your approach to education? Okay. Yeah. So if you look at uh, my philosophy, which uh, I, I started concrete getting it more and more concrete in the 90s, was primarily that if your maxim, as per what the management schools then said, is about maximizing shareholder value, and those days it was called maximizing shareholder wealth, we are missing out a whole load of other stakeholders uh, in this world. And, and therefore, I, I said that 
you know, somewhere that needs to be addressed. And if you look at it, I, I'm looking at education as a way and means of shaping the mindset of our future generations towards not looking at that narrow construct of what success is or uh, what is, what is uh, you know, if, if it's all optimizing shareholder wealth, then you're not going uh, in line with what nature wants. Uh, and it has to be across stakeholders. And that's why I, I thought that, you know, if I could get into education and the younger uh, you catch them, the easier you're able to get some of your thoughts going uh, into these children. It may not, you know, you know it may not have uh, a significant impact, uh, uh, but I still believe that there will be a few who will walk out into this world from our schools uh, who will think differently. Also, if you look at what I'm doing right now in uh, design thinking, Aviv, so if you look at uh, the uh, they are talking of what's called as human-centered design. Mm -hmm. uh, not sure whether you've seen what the D-School and others uh, all uh, or talk about uh, human-centered design uh, for the human, by the human, and the, the human is the user, the human is the person who pays, and therefore human-centric design. And I completely disagree with this, and I have actually asked for that term to be changed to life-centric design. Right. Uh, I, 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 you know, I've given them examples as well in terms of, uh, hey, let's take this, uh, uh, the, uh, the big factories, yeah, the bacon and pork factories, where they store these uh, uh, pigs, uh, where they artificially fatten them with food and then keep them in pens, uh, which are almost just, you know, slightly bigger than their size. After some time, you know, and these, these pigs have to wait for three weeks before they get, uh, you know, converted to meat. In those three weeks, they're put in those pens waiting for death. And these pigs can't stand in that pen because it's exactly their height. So they just lie down. And if they lie down on one side, they can't turn to the other side because the pen is not large enough. So just imagine Sounds lying horrible. down. Yes. And why do we do this? Because that's supposed to be efficiency. Now, compare this, uh, Aviv, with another beautiful story that I saw in, uh, uh, in BBC where these uh, honey hunters, so these are the guys in uh, the Sundarban areas, uh, which is uh, to the uh, northeast of uh, India, the Sundarban areas. So here are these guys who actually go and uh, take honey from these large hives which are in those forests. Once you enter the forest, you actually lose bearing. It's like in a sea. Uh, so you won't know where you are uh, within a you know, few minutes of entering and getting into the forest. So these guys, the trick is to ensure that they go back to places where they know the beehive exists and therefore they spend the least amount of time in the forest to get out the honey. So this guy actually, you know, he, he takes this BBC reporter along and he shows them what he does. So he lands up over there and he sings. And then he smokes out the bees and then he cuts the hive and he cuts 75% of the hive. He then sings again and then he's ready to leave. And the BBC reporter asked him, okay, why did you sing first? And he said, I sang first because I thanked the bees for being there when I came there. 
so that I did need to move around and search for another hive. So I thank the bees for being there and providing my livelihood for, for today. Nice. And then he said, okay, that was all great, but why did you leave behind 25% of the hive? And what did you sing after that? So he said, look, I leave behind 25% of the hive because, and I sing to the bees at the end, requesting the bees to come back. And when they come back and build the hive again, I can come back after a month without searching anywhere in the forest because I know exactly this is where the bee would have, bees would have built the hive again. So just imagine the productivity and efficiency, Aviv, because he left behind that 25%. You're describing the, the kind of uh, natural framework of the natural worlds and how different they are because they are oriented not for short-term efficiency, but for long-term sustainability. The, the, the upside-down realization here is that uh, long-term sustainability is actually more efficient in the bigger scheme of things. Exactly. It's, just, it's just that because business uh, in the world today is, is governed by the quarterly earning reports of um, Wall Street and other stock exchanges, it is unable to always align itself with long-term sustainable practices. Correct. And there, there is obviously a bug in the system. Some will argue against that point of view that the financial system is what drives efficiency and smart innovation in the, in the real world. But the point you're asserting is exactly the other way around. And uh, beautiful story. Uh, before we lose the, the thread of education, say a little more about the hundred schools that you are involved with in rural India and, and in what way do you get involved uh, in those endeavors? Okay, so this, this journey started over five years uh, for me when two youngsters, uh, both from Microsoft actually came to meet me. One was a finance guy and one was a, a technology guy. And, and they showed me a concept where they said, hey, uh, in India, we are faced with uh, two major issues. One is 80% of our schools are in villages, and the, there are no teachers in the villages because nobody is landing up there to teach because there are no other facilities, no infrastructure, etc., to to send good teachers from the cities or wherever uh, else into those villages. So that was one. And second, whatever uh, teachers that were there were not of high quality. So we said both ways the education was suffering. So we decided, okay, how do we handle this issue? You know, we can't obviously go take a teacher to that village to teach because that model has failed and it cannot be sustained. So we said, okay, how do we reach education and good quality education at a sustained level to these children, and we realized that technology was the way forward. And so what we've done is we've we set up digital infrastructure in those schools and actually have volunteers from corporates. So people like you and me and you know so many others like this, uh, I have about 600 volunteers now uh, from across 110 cities across the world who teach these children over Skype, 
and we've also got our own proprietary uh, platform on which they could get the they can get the content they can mark attendance they can keep tests of understanding on our what's that's on our platform and then do the class over skype so it is live teaching uh, children can see uh, the the teacher and uh, actually uh, they have benefited significantly because i have some of the brightest minds actually teaching these children that's extraordinary and here again we are looking at empowerment uh, and and i think that's the way how you know the way education can empower uh, societies across the world it's, it's just unbelievable unless you see that uh, uh, you know some of the villages uh, are places which are uh, hit by insurgency mm. uh, the army is deployed there they let us in i mean these the the the, the insurgents let us in because they know we are doing something good for their children through education i've go been to tribal villages where they haven't gone beyond their village so they don't know anything else other than the village so when we brought them a computer that was the first time they were seeing a computer and i'm saying this is about 4 years ago so uh, these are some of the societies where we are working with and completely working to transform uh, transform them there's one society away which is on the highway it's a village on the highway uh, in india and the highway uh, you know and that that is in a very arid zone so very little water no the livelihood so the only livelihood they have is you know setting up some shops on the highway so that all the truckers and you know other passer by can actually get some tea some biscuits some food to eat uh, and the whole village and there are many villages like this and this particular village where we are working actually gets their livelihood out of that and with that comes prostitution mm. so every child over 13 years every girl child over 13 years is pulled into prostitution in that village they find there's nothing wrong with it and it's going on for years and i'm 100% sure that by the end of this year i would have had one child take education and prefer education over prostitution and i'm yes. sure that's going to happen yes and when it happens the society that that village will start transform yes wow that's really fighting at at the very foundational level and in um, in a way that can make a difference yes yes ravi where will you be in 10 years what will you be doing in 10 years time i'm actually setting up a school uh, for uh, up to 10th grade with a completely uh, different way of uh, looking at teaching and pedagogy and trying to bring a set of uh, students over there who who would be spiritual and will be able to compete and live with this world uh, somehow we always seen or always think that if you're spiritual you you won't be able to survive uh, in this world and i completely differ uh, from that because spirituality only strengthens you yes and and i think you will make better leaders uh, and better mindful people uh, and and this world needs more mindful people right and and that's exactly what i'm going to do in that in that school and i hope to have uh, close to about 1000 schools uh, in the in rural india and 
hopefully uh, have some fun and learning thanks to that because it's a it's an opportunity aviv how i see it is it's an opportunity that god has given me to be of some service or help to people mm. uh, it's an opportunity that's come to me it is improving my spiritual stock inside me because of i am going through the learning i'm not doing anyone a huge favor or you know something great for them it is actually they in turn have given me this opportunity to serve them and i think that is my learning yes that school that uh, you are describing is is ultimately about uh, preparing people and preparing leaders for the world of tomorrow yes and what you are envisioning is a form of uh, leadership and form of life that's integrated where we we no longer need to uh, view the professional and the personal practical and the spiritual as realms that are in conflict but you're Correct. describing you're dis- you're describing a way of of being and a way of doing that that's capable of integrating those different aspects of of being a human and and being uh, alive and i think what you are absolutely so yeah i think what you're saying is that unless we are raising people with that kind of outlook at life then it's going to be very difficult to solve all the the big problems on the world stage because unless we are changing the or or facilitating a new operating system uh, one that that integrates all those aspects of of human life where intelligence and and healing and and solution can be accessed unless you you facilitate and raise these kind of uh people with that type of mindset it it's uh going to be more difficult to solve the the kind of challenges that are on the world stage uh, that that's what i read in what you're describing absolutely aviv you know you asked me that question what what fills your life with uh, uh, energy correct yes and for me it is and you and you hit the right word it's the fact that we are all alive and that's why if you see my my consulting organization's name is alive can you bring alive that leader in you and you know when i deal with children i see it day in and day out they are so alive to everything that is happening and that mindfulness uh, avi i think is what the future leaders will need that's beautiful and a beautiful place to land uh, this uh, rich conversation with you ravi thank you so very much i should thank you avi for this uh, opportunity and you know it was wonderful connecting up with you after such a long time Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, discover how you learn best and refine your learning mastery. Ravi found that he learns best by asking questions and by listening. How do you learn best? What helps you connect with people and accelerate your learning? Here is an exercise for the next 10 days. Every day ask at least one person, how do you learn best? What helps you assimilate new situations and learning? 
Become curious about the learning styles of other people and you will learn so much about your own learning preferences. Second, find the practices that renew and fortify you. You nourish your body every day, but do you nourish your spirit and your soul? Ravi finds nourishment in prayer. What are your spiritual practices that connects you to the deepest parts of yourself where you find meaning and fortitude? Discover these practices and make them part of your daily rituals and routines. Third, overcome your fears to bring your vision and aspirations to life. Ravi's insight is that the bridge we must all cross to convert our dreams to reality is fear. To live fully, to express your talents, and to fulfill your purpose, you must find the courage of your convictions. You are already empowered, but do you act the part? Do you take the reins given to you? How do people conquer fear? Prayer, as Ravi reflected, is one way. Meditation, companionship, study, physical exertion, and the help of a coach are some of the ways people overcome fears. Find your way and realize your dreams. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.